Hi, my name is Dr. Brendan McCarthy. I'm the Chief Medical Officer of Protea Medical Center in Chandler, Arizona. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Today's uh, episode, I'm going to be doing part two of a, a, a case, basically an amalgam of, of many of the women that I've seen put into one case. And uh, the case's name is Julie. This is part two of Julie today. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, uh, I like to do everything cited. So whenever you see me pointing up here, whenever you see that little little thing up here, you'll know that I'm citing my research. So please look into the notes below. Uh, if you've not seen part one, I strongly recommend seeing part one before tuning into part two. Let me circle back to Julie again and tell it a different way for you, okay? At the age of 13, Julie was having what's called anovulatory dysfunctional uterine bleeding, okay? She's not ovulating yet, and that's normal at that age group. It's not great, and we don't like it, but it happens. And what happens is she'll have estrogen, and when she should ovulate around day 12, which is ideal, uh, instead of ovulating, she just keeps making estrogen. That's okay, it happens. It's not the end of the world, but it will cause these symptoms she's having. And the standard of care, what's used as an off-label medication is oral contraceptives. And the doctor does that. Is that wise? That's in the book, but is it great? No. You know, and I'll get into that in a minute. There's also, you can use oral micronized progesterone, which is a bioidentical natural version of progesterone. What that progesterone would do is you think about the first two weeks, estrogen should be stimulating the lining of the uterus and making it a little bit thicker. That's okay. It's good. It does that. Day 12 or 13, when you ovulate, estrogen levels go down and progesterone should come up instead. Progesterone now becomes more dominant. Progesterone stops the lining of the uterus from becoming too thick. It brings it back to more normal, gets better blood flow to the area, and you don't have clotting. You don't have cramping. You don't have any of these side effects. The thing about it is using oral micronized progesterone, which is available at every drugstore. It's a normal prescription. They'll use oral contraceptives instead, but oral contraceptives, as I mentioned earlier, have a lot of side effects. So when Julie progresses to college, she starts noticing some mood changes and she starts noticing a drop off in her libido. Why? Why is that? Well, one of the things they don't tell women, but it's in that handout. So when you get your oral contraceptives, there's that little book that comes with it. You fold out, it's like a poster you put on your wall with all the information about it. In there has some startling information that uh, no one talks about. What all contraceptives do is that they often, not always, but very often, permanently upregulate something called sex hormone binding globulin. Sex hormone binding globulin is a protein your liver makes, and it preferentially binds to testosterone, and it renders it inert. Okay, I have estrogen in my body. Men are supposed to have estrogen. Women are supposed to have testosterone. It's all about the ratio and the bioavailability and the function of it. So Julie didn't realize that taking oral contraceptives for all these years was permanently, often permanently, inhibiting her natural levels of testosterone. So now her libido's gone. And now there's a low-grade depression because testosterone in women and men when it crosses the blood-brain barrier, it becomes something called an androstain, which is a neurosteroid, and that affects anxiety, and it affects your, your mood. So imagine there was something we gave men on the regular that permanently causes them to have sexual dysfunction. Would it be on the market very long? No. This is, though. This is. So Julie's on this, and she doesn't know it. 
She says, no, that's, that's why our libido. And think about your marriages and your relationships and your intimacy and your connection. W women, your libido is yours. It's yours. You own that. It's, it's personal. And it's intimate. It's yours. And it should not be taken away without your permission. Or at least your consent. Your specific consent. It, it, having a marriage, a healthy marriage without intimacy is not always easy if not, not always possible, at least be aware of it. And no one tells you. I'm not against oral contraceptives. I'm not against, sorry, hmm, I am. I'm against, I'm against doing things to your body that you don't know about. I'm also against shortcuts and cheating and doing a bad job. Kind of me. And so in the case of Julie, you know, why aren't we just giving her normal progesterone? Why aren't we figuring out why she's not ovulating? If she needs to use contraceptive, we can do different things. And my, another podcast we're going to do is they, they really have not been doing enough research in women's health forever, ever, ever. So we're still stuck with oral contraceptives. They could have been evolved from now. They could be so many more better things we could be doing by now. But we're just stymied by lack of funding and lack of research. I mean, look at with erectile dysfunction for men versus PMS for women. What are we doing? They're not, right? So Julie, when she graduates college, she gets out to her job, starts her career. That's an exciting time in a person's life. They're finding their calling. They're getting into their job. They're doing what they've always wanted to do. And it's liberating, but it brings a whole nother layer of new stresses in someone's life. You know, women work harder and are paid less and receive less acknowledgement for their work than men. This creates a profound amount of stress in anybody in that situation. Um, the increase in stress secondary to that transition, that increase in stress that Julie's experiencing regarding starting a career and, and being a little bit behind and not being as paid as well and also not always being acknowledged as well as her other peers, male peers, creates stress. So whenever we have high levels of stress, what happens? You know, it's, stress is natural birth control. So what will happen with Julie is she's having stress and because of that stress, she doesn't ovulate, Okay. Going back to the beginning of Julie, Julie does not ovulate in the very beginning of her cycles when she's young because she's young and that's initiating the cycle. That's normal in the very beginning of having your period, a menarche it's called. Another cause for not ovulating and not generating enough progesterone is going to be high stress. It's like natural birth control. When you're stressed out, you, you, you don't ovulate, it's not a good time to conceive. So, so one of the problems with that is that when you're having stress and you're not ovulating, that lower level of progesterone plays havoc on brain chemistry. Progesterone, it's made after ovulation. Estrogen goes down, progesterone goes up. Progesterone calms down the line of the uterus, prevents it from becoming too thick, controls that, that's good, but also crosses the blood-brain barrier, goes up here, and it gets converted to allopregnenolone. Allopregnenolone binds to the GABA receptor, which is the anxiety part of the brain. Without progesterone making allopregnenolone, the brain moves to anxiety, whether you want it to or not. You can have a beautiful marriage. You can have a beautiful friendship. You can have a beautiful career. You can have everything perfect. But you always feel like something's going to go wrong. That's the impact of low progesterone on a woman's brain. Further, progesterone is essential for the production of monoamines. And you know that as serotonin and melatonin. Those levels start to drop off. More serotonin when you're younger. Melatonin comes later on towards menopause. So here's Julie now in this new career, working hard under high stress, cortisol's ramped up, running around, 
she's having high stress. She's not ovulating. She's now having more anxiety, more depression. Another side of side effect of low serotonin is gonna be headaches and sugar cravings. So that's where she is now. At this point, you know, think about a woman in her mid twenties. Most of them have this mindset of just gotta suck it up. And I know that. I hear that. They just do. I work with women all the time. So I gotta suck it up. Gotta get through my day. This is what happens. This is what I gotta do. And they do. And they do. The true stress of Julie began when she started having kids. <laughs> and I love children, man. I love my kids. I have three kids too. I love them. But I understand that stress. And I've seen it firsthand. Um, when she goes back to work, she has to work harder and put in more energy now. And that's real for women because the cost of conceiving and starting a family for women is high. It sets back their career. It sets back their promotions and their career advancement. It sets back their income. They don't make as much throughout the course of their lifetime if they have children. That's a real thing. It's a real concern. That's where the stress really starts because she took time off to have her kids, went back into her career, tried to catch up, tries to prove herself again, you know, you know, re-earned her, her position, so to speak. And that's very stressful, you know. So, so, you know, Julie here at this point, going back to work, as I mentioned earlier, she goes to a primary care provider, which is where we should go in these situations. You know, she presents with anxiety. But even how many women that present to their primary care provider with anxiety get proper care and treatment? What happens? When women see their primary care provider, they're dismissed. They're told that's just the way it is. Or they're prescribed something that's highly addictive, such as a benzodiazepine, such as Xanax. That, that, that does still happen these days. I see it. At no point is the doctor running lab work. At no point is the physician trying to understand what the underpinnings are. What's the cause of this woman's anxiety? They just see it as a character defect, not a biological thing. They're not even curious. That's a fact. This is the this is a hard. This is a hard presentation to talk about because there's so much emotion. Because every time I speak about one of these things, I see a patient's face. I see, I see a woman, you know, I, you've had, I've had so many experiences in that room and listening and it's humbling. I wouldn't be the man I am today if it wasn't for the women who've sat in my practice with me and trusted me and spoke to me. I wouldn't be the father I am the husband I am and I've been changed over that what women experience is uh, in some ways nothing short of barbaric so and and the funny thing is I'm not using hyperbole I'm not using hyperbole this is the truth and you know this if this is a woman watching this most of you will agree with me and be like wow this guy knows I do I do I know that I will never experience it, but I promise you, I have listened and I understand. You need a doctor that does that for you. And, and yeah, that's the purpose of these podcasts, to be honest with you, at the end of the day, that's the purpose of these things. So back to Julie. Um, so back to Julie. So Julie, you know, the problem with stress and, and, and long-term stress is that it doesn't disappear. The impact of stress on our bodies doesn't disappear the minute that we, can you see my barefoot, by the way? Good, I was like, that barefoot. <laughs> the, the problem with stress and, and 
the stress, the effect stress has on our body is that it doesn't go away if we ignore it. Some things do. Like, you know, I hurt my back. If I ignore it and kind of take care of myself, it'll get better. I got a cut. I'll ignore it and it gets better. You know what I mean? Some things we ignore and get better. The impact of stress on our lives, not so much. Not so much. It just festers and gets worse and it builds. Um, it truly impacts our whole endocrine system. And that's no lie. This is the study cortisol, the villain in metabolic syndrome. This is cortisol's negatively associated with insulin sensitivity in overweight Latino youth. And this is effects of morning cortisol elevation on insulin secretion and glucose regulation in humans. So chronic stress, in the case of Julie in this situation, chronic stress leads to elevated postprandial and fasting insulin. This insulin elevation triggers weight gain. It triggers fat deposition, okay? Julia's right to see her doctor. You're supposed to go to your doctor in these situations. She's doing the right thing. But her doctor saying eat less and do more is a disservice to her. That is not the right way to treat a human being. If Julia was overweight because she was overeating, her hemoglobin A1C would be elevated, and we could verify that. But more often than not in my practice, I see women presenting to clinic with weight gain and a normal hemoglobin A1C, if not a low one, because they're cutting their calories like their other doctor told them to, and they're exercising. So their A1C is like 5, 5'1", five but they're presenting to clinic 50 pounds overweight. What do I do? Do I tell them to cut their calories? How offensive is that? How offensive is that to tell a woman that? Cut your calories. You're at 50 for your A1C. 4.8 is the bottom of the line there. 5.6 and higher is pre-diabetic. 6.4 and higher is diabetic. This girl's nothing, nothing on the scale. But she has high insulin. That's from stress. Cutting calories doesn't solve this. Address the insulin does. If you think about it, how many women go to these marathons and fun runs and mud runs and whatever it is they're doing to, to reclaim their bodies, reclaim their health? You know, most of them. But is that what's wrong with them? You know? I want my patients to compete in runs. I want them to do you know, marathons. I want them to do fun things like that, but not because that's the only way for them to stay healthy. I want to do it because it's a good benefit, because it's great. They enjoy it. It does make them healthy, but it's not because that's the only thing that keeps them a, a normal weight, you know? So when it comes to the timeline of Julie at 39, and she's in the thick of her stress, she's exercising daily, she's controlling her diet, she's working a job, she's managing her home, you know, this is the truth. Women work more hours a day than men do. That's a fact. That's been like that since the 1940s. Studies show that when women went into the workforce around World War II, men, when they came back from World War II, women stayed in the workforce and men joined the workforce. Men didn't go and start working from home or doing work around the house. Women did both. Women would work out of the house with a career, they'd also manage the home. So that was two jobs. Women work more hours a day than men do because of this. And this is a worldwide thing, okay? Some countries worse than others. Some countries are not even measurable. But this is a truth. Um, when it came to Juliet, 43 years old, her stress levels led to chronic cortisol deficiencies 
and progesterone deficiencies, and it led to elevated levels of insulin. Um, her long-term use of oral contraceptives led to her having a, a permanent reduction in free testosterone. And, you know, the progesterone deficiency, as I mentioned earlier, that leads to having insomnia. Uh, the elevated insulin, as I mentioned earlier, that's going to cause all that weight gain. Um, the low cortisol is going to cause her to have fatigue. And the low testosterone is going to also contribute to her mood, but also it's going to lower her libido. That's where she is. Unfortunately, few doctors are going to think this way. Few doctors are going to look at the research. It's not even research. This is a school book, by the way. This is school book. <laughs> it's true. But few doctors do this. Patient presents with any of these things. Why can't we run the labs, figure it out, treat it directly? Why not? Why not? Why can't we do that? The standard of care for women, for weight and libido, is generally to blame the patient, tell them they need to lose weight. Um, the standard of care for women when it comes to insomnia, depression, and anxiety is to just give them uh, um, medications to shut that pathway down and to force them to sleep, to shut down their serotonin, and, or they give in a, a, a um, really addictive compound, the benzodiazepine class, of medications instead of truly understanding what the cause was. The long-term impact of this kind of avoidance on the part of the care provider leads to the patients feeling alienated and not trusting their doctor. And that's where we are today. If any of these things resonated with you, I want you to feel empowered with what I just said. I want you to read some of the citations. I want you to start bringing this with you to your doctor's office. I want you to feel empowered to push back and to challenge the care you're provided with and say, I would like this type of care. I'd like you to try and understand me. I'd like you to try and figure me out. Please, I need help. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you so much. I hope this was helpful to you. I hope this provided you some type of uh, benefit. Um, when you like, when you subscribe, or when you share this, this is how I know this is the kind of content that you like. And then I'll make more of it. So thank you very much, and have a good day. Bye.